Buddha's first teaching after his enlightenment is called the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, the turning of the wheel of the law. When we look historically, we can see the Buddha turned this wheel of the Dharma in India 2,500 years ago, and the wheel has rolled across Asia, somehow across the Pacific, to Barry, Massachusetts. And it's still rolling, it's still turning. What the wheel of the Dharma means in this context are the teachings of the five spiritual powers, the five spiritual faculties. That is faith and energy and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom. When the Buddha first turned the wheel of the Dharma, he explained these five faculties and how they actually become what he called controlling powers of the mind, where we begin to rest or abide in these five states. The first of them is called in Pali Sattha, or faith. It's usually translated either as faith or confidence or trust, This quality of faith is the mind or heart which is open to that which is beyond our limited selves. It's the quality of the heart which is open to what's beyond our usual ego concerns and desires. So in that sense, faith opens us to what is greater than ourselves. I think it might be helpful to distinguish this quality of faith from that of belief. Because in belief, we draw conclusions. And in faith, we rest in openness. And it's a very different quality. Faith or sadha is that quality which brought us to the practice. It was our original inspiration to practice. And it's also what sustains our efforts. What keeps us going? Although at times it may not be terribly obvious to you, all of us have very strong seeds of sata, of faith within us. Because if we didn't, you wouldn't be here. On the one hand, after seven weeks, eight weeks, or just a couple of weeks, this reality of the retreat may seem totally ordinary to you, or at times even you may feel that your faith is weak, you know, your confidence feels shaky. But from the perspective of the world, the fact that you're here is totally extraordinary, because for this time, Really, you have given up everything or most things that the world values and holds, holds important. I don't know whether you had the experience of <coughs> trying to explain to someone who has never been on retreat what it was that you were going to do for three months. <coughs> well, I'm going to sit and I'm going to walk <laughs> and then sit and walk and not talk to anybody and mostly not even look at anybody and go on and on. It's a very strange 
things from the worldly perspective. And so when you consider, well, what brings me here? Why do I do this? It's clear that there's some very strong commitment, some strong faith and strong confidence you know, in the Dharma, in yourself. In the beginning of our practice, faith can be inspired in a lot of different ways. <clears throat> Sometimes it's inspired by a person, you know, either somebody we've met or some historical person, like the Buddha or some other great being, you know, spiritual being. And we know of them, or know them personally, and certain qualities in them inspire us to begin our investigation of the path. Maybe qualities that we see or feel in them of love, or compassion, or wisdom, or selflessness, of emptiness, of kindness. It's as if we get the scent of enlightenment. We can get a scent of it, or a sense of it. And when we feel or sense these qualities in other people, in other beings, we get inspired to develop them within ourselves. It becomes the source of our own aspiration for what's possible. Just one example of this, and there are many, Some years ago, Sharon and I were at a conference, a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Abbey, where Thomas Merton was practicing, you know, and living as a monk. And at this Buddhist Christian conference, the Dalai Lama came. He was there. And the monks, the Trappist monks, were showing him around the abbey. And they were going around, showing different places, and the way they make, or the way they uh, make their living, you know, as a livelihood for the monastery, they make cheese, and they make fruitcake, and then sell them. So the Dalai Lama went around, and they showed him you know, where they made the cheese and where they made the fruitcake. So that night, in his first public address, this is to a very, you know, there were bishops and high-ranking Christian dignitaries and Buddhist monks from all the traditions. So Dalai Lama gives this opening address and he's talking about being welcomed to the monastery and about the tour that he was given. And he said, you know, when we're going on the tour, the monks kept offering me cheese, but I really wanted fruitcake. And he just (laughs) burst out laughing. (laughs) And he repeated this again and again, I really wanted the fruitcake, but they just kept offering me the cheese. It was so wonderful just to see somebody embody that quality, you know, of childlike innocence and ease and humor and lightness with somebody who is intimately familiar with suffering. And it was tremendously inspirational. It was like the Dalai Lama's energy, you know, and other beings like that. When we either are with them, or hear about them, or read about them. In some way, they imprint it on us. You know, and that's a condition for faith to arise, because and we see what's possible. We see what's possible for us. There's a much more classic and... You know, one 
a straight-laced example illustrating how faith and confidence can arise from the examples of others. And this comes from a classical Buddhist text that's called The Questions of King Melinda. And this is a text, Melinda, King Melinda was a Greek king in what I now believe the region of Afghanistan, you know, in that time after Alexander the Great and the descendants. And so it was a Greek king in that time, and he had met this Buddhist monk, Nagasena, who was an arhant. And there's a series of dialogues, questions and responses between King Melinda and Nagasena. It's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful book, just opening up different aspects of the teachings. So there's a story in the questions of King Melinda about an area of the countryside where there's a flooding stream and people need to get to the other side, to the other shore. But there's a lot of confusion. People, you know, there's been a lot of rain or torrential rain and the stream is flooding. They don't quite know how to do it. So people are milling around in this kind of confusion. And then one person comes along and sees the situation, can wisely assess it, and it gathers up his or her strength, jumps across the stream, makes it safe. And when other people see this, they see that it's possible, they get inspired, they get the energy, they get the inspiration, yes, I can do this too. As the story goes, everybody crosses to safety. So when I read that story, I thought, well, maybe this is what's meant by a leap of faith. It's like the leap across the stream. Well, what this shore means you know, this is, of course, a metaphor. Being in confusion on this shore is our worldly life in samsara. Our lives being lost in delusion and ignorance, lost in distraction. Unmindful, not knowing what's going on. Like living in the delusion, the enchantment of the distracted mind. The further shore taking the leap of faith to the other shore signifies the mind that's awakened from delusion, awakened from ignorance. So when we see people or know of people who are accomplished, you know, who have crossed to the other shore, to some, at least one foot on the other shore, it can inspire us. It can become a genuine source of faith for us. Now we see, yes, this is possible, I can do this too. But perhaps an even stronger condition for faith to arise, and one that's more immediate for most of us, is the awareness of suffering. Because we may not always be in the company of very enlightened beings. We're often in the company of some kind of suffering or distress or difficulty. Faced with suffering, faced with distress, either in ourselves or in the world, when we see it in the world, we really are faced with two alternatives. And this is talked about in the teachings. We either get lost in bewilderment or confusion, not knowing what to do about this situation of suffering. 
or we begin to seek a way of understanding it. The suffering actually becomes our wake-up call. And Ajahn Chah, you know, the great Thai master of last century, he put it very simply. He said, there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And that's up to us. When we're in that situation, do we go the route of confusion and bewilderment? Do we go the route of seeking a way to understand? And it's interesting to watch our own responses because so often we know from our own experience and also in watching others, very often in times of great pain or difficulty, like the mind can drown, you know, in feelings of anguish or despair or anger or hopelessness. And we just go down that vortex. But it's also possible when there's some wisdom for that suffering to generate the faith to look more deeply to understand, well, what is its cause? How is this arising? How can I understand it? What is the possibility for us of freedom in this situation? Suffering, uncertainty, even doubt itself can become what Joseph Campbell called the call to destiny, the call to awakening. Suffering becomes the condition can become the condition for faith to arise. just want to read one line from a poem I read in the first six weeks, a poem by Mary Oliver, The Journey, where she said, One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. And that's a beautiful line describing that moment of awakening to faith, to confidence. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. At first the refuge of faith may be in things <coughs> outside of ourselves. You know, and very traditionally, very classically, when faith is talked about, it's talked about in terms of faith or taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. But a deeper meaning, both of these three refuges and also the direction of faith, is the understanding that it always points back, the investigation always points back to the nature of our own minds, our own experience. Because that's where freedom is to be found. It's not outside of ourselves. And it's said, this is said so often and so frequently in the Buddhist teachings the first very well-known verse <coughs> in the Dhammapada, or the collection, a collection, a verse collection of the teachings, where the Buddha says, mind is the forerunner of all things. If one thinks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows like the wheel follows the foot of the ox. You have to think of ox cart. If one thinks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows like the wheel follows the foot of the ox. 
Mind is foreign of all things. If one thinks or acts with a pure mind, happiness follows like a shadow that never leaves. So where is the refuge except in our own minds and the purification of our own minds? It really is a moment, a great life-changing moment, and one, I think, which we all share when we first realize that what we're seeking in our lives is within us. And this is a revolutionary turning because mostly people are looking outside of themselves for fulfillment, for completion, for happiness. And so to have, to have come to that place where we realize that it's not outside, that it's really within, that is the turning point of faith, of confidence. This was expressed uh, very uh, succinctly by the writer Wei Weiwei, who was an Englishman who lived in Hong Kong. And he wrote under this name, Wei Weiwei, and he has a very... uh, He clearly had some degree of awakening or understanding. He has several books with very pithy little teachings, Taoist, Buddhist, wisdom teachings, Uh, one of the things he said was, what you're looking for is what is looking. (laughs) Can we turn back in? Of course, that's, that's our practice. In addition to that moment when we realize that it's within us, there is another transformative moment of faith, of spiritual faith, that comes in our lives and in our practice. And I think it's one worth marking, because it really is a transition point. And again, it's, it's a moment that we have all shared. And that is the realization. when we go from an intellectual appreciation of the Dharma, you know, when we, when we understand it and we nod our heads sagely and think, yeah, that sounds good, when we go from that level of devotion or respect of the Dharma to the realization that we can also do this, that we can also accomplish awakening, accomplish liberation, And of course, that's what brings us all here, because we have had that moment of understanding. And this establishes faith or confidence on a whole other level. As we practice, based on the understanding that it is within us and that we can do this, based on these two moments of turning or establishment of faith, as we practice, the confidence of sadha is strengthened and continues to be strengthened by our own direct experience. You know, and as you know and has been said probably many times, the literal meaning of vipassana, the meaning of the Pali word, is seeing things clearly. 
seeing things distinctly, seeing things as they are. So at this level, faith does not, it's not a matter of belief. And it's not only, or it's not limited to the faith or inspiration we get from others. It comes from our own inner direct knowing. We have faith or confidence in the moment, in the direct actuality of our experience, because we are seeing what is true for ourselves. Now, what is a thought? How many thoughts have you observed since you've been here? Now, what is the actuality? Not the content, but what is a thought? What is an emotion? What is the nature of this body? What is the nature of experience that's free from the proliferation of concepts? An immediacy of knowing, this immediate direct knowing, comes from the most simple, uncontrived awareness. In a moment of hearing, is there any doubt, is there any confusion, is there any bewilderment? It's just hearing. In that moment, we have touched what is true in that in that moment's experience. And now to reveal something which you all know but may not have paid attention to, in a moment of hearing there's no bewilderment, there's no confusion, it's just what it is. Well, there are only six things which ever happen. This hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, (laughs) <laughs> mind objects you know, the sight, sound, smell, taste, sensations and mind objects, thoughts and emotions whatever's arising in the mind so all the stories all the complexities, all the dramas that we live in when we come down to what's really happening it's just one of these six things we can rest in the awareness the simple the simple awareness of that This immediacy of knowing with these six objects begins to reveal to us sort of the innate wakefulness of the mind, the nature of the mind being awareness. We become familiar with it. We we learn to trust it. In a moment of hearing, is there any special effort to know the sound? No. When we're undistracted, that awareness is there effortlessly. So we need to learn to recognize and trust this, and this deepens our sense of confidence. Milarepa, who, you know, as I'm sure most of you know, is this great uh, Tibetan yogi and adept, and he used to give his teachings in the form of song. And, you know, there are these famous hundred thousand songs of Milarepa. Well, I won't sing this. <laughs> it's my gift to you of the evening. 
He said, I attain all my knowledge through observing the mind within. Thus all my thoughts become the teaching of the Dharma and apparent phenomena are all the books one needs. It's just that reaffirmation. I attain all my knowledge, all my understanding through observing the mind within. It's all there. The whole Dharma is, is revealed. So we develop faith not only in the actuality of the moment, the simplicity of the moment's experience, in which there is not confusion and there's not doubt. Things are just as they are. But we also develop another kind of faith, and that is a faith in the direction of our whole life's journey. This is a journey not in time and not in space, but it's really the journey of our own inner understanding. We experience <coughs> the growing possibility of awakening. And that becomes the direction of our lives. <coughs> and we actually are awake more and more. So it's not just some future goal. We begin to see in our experience, yes, I'm awake more and more in the course of the day, in the course of our lives. Now what this does, understanding the journey of awakening, this does something very important in that it gives us a sense of path. That the wholeness of our spiritual practice is not only our connection with the present moment, but it's also the sense that this is leading someplace. And I think that sometimes in sort of Western Dharma circles, we limit ourselves by confining the understanding of the spiritual path simply to our connection to the moment. Of course, that's an essential component. But we can lose a dimension of power and lose a dimension of spiritual energy when we don't understand that by connecting to the present moment there is an unfolding journey happening. It is actually going someplace. So it's this very powerful combination of presence and path, these two combined, of being grounded in the present moment's experience, even as we understand that we're navigating to a more complete freedom. Presence in the moment and sense of path. This provides a whole different context and meaning to our lives. There is no contradiction at all between being in the present and having in mind a goal. And very often the whole notion of goal has been dismissed because people perhaps have misused it in some way 
to take us out of the moment. Bringing these two together is a very powerful force. We see the union of the, of the two every day in the most ordinary circumstances. When you get up from your seat, you get up with a sense of where you're going, of what you're going to do. Even as you're paying attention to the whole process of standing and to the experience, there is a sense of destination, there is a sense of purpose. When we look at this, we can see the amazing power of intention in our lives. And the Buddha, of course, talked of how everything springs from intention. It leads not only to the simplicity of physical destination, it also leads to karmic destinations. What our sense of purpose is, what our intention is, has enormous consequences. The power of intention has the potential to lead even to Buddhahood. And so it's a hugely important piece of the understanding. I want to read this. This is from a book which I mentioned earlier in the retreat, Mount Analog by René Domal. And the metaphor in this book is, you know, the spiritual journey is climbing this mountain. It says, keep your eye fixed on the path to the top, <coughs> but don't forget to look right in front of you. The last step depends on the first. Don't think you're there just because you see the summit. Watch your footing. Be sure of the next step. But don't let that distract you from the highest goal, because the first step depends on the last. That's the union of presence and past. The last step depends on the first, what we're doing right now. The first step depends on the last. What is our purpose? What is our aspiration? This quality of faith, this quality of confidence in the present, in the past, it opens us, it keeps us open to the unfolding mysteries of the Dharma. It helps us, when faith is there, when confidence is there, it helps us not get stuck at different places along the way because it has that quality of openness to what is as yet unknown. So many times in my practice, countless times, I would have an experience and the thought would come, now I've got it. You know, I reach some new level of understanding, or, ah, you know, this is it. But then some, I would go on practicing, and some new insight, completely unexpected often, would arise. And this kept happening over and over again, until I realized the danger of fixing a view. Remember one time, pretty pretty early on in my time in India, I had this one experience. I was on staying at a place called the Burmese Vihara, which was just sort of a rest house in Bodh Gaya for Burmese pilgrims. But at that time, Burma was closed, and there were no pilgrims, so it was like the favorite place for Western Dharma buns. 
And I, I did a lot of practice there. And it had, it had uh, as many places, a, a flat roof where you could walk on the roof. So I, would be doing, I was doing my walking meditation on the roof. I had this experience after, after some months of being there. Just something happened, and the whole subject-object dichotomy dissolved. You know, and there was just effortless knowing. Without subject, without object, I, it's like I started dancing around the roof because I couldn't get away from the awareness. You know, I felt, and so my mind, ah, oh, this is freedom. Because I felt that way. I felt incredibly free. And so then I, next time I saw my teacher, Manindra, I was very excited about this. You know, and I told him about you know, my experience. And the only thing he said to me was, don't recondition your mind. That was a bit of a deflation. <laughs> but it was a very helpful because without realizing it, I had reified that experience, oh, this experience. Now I've got it. This is freedom. Instead of seeing it as part of this vast unfolding journey of understanding. As I was thinking about the talk tonight, just I was reminded and Perhaps some of you remember from the 70s, the days of uh, Est, you know, Werner Erhard, and the whole thing about getting it. Um, and so that was, that was, of course, very kind of big in New Age culture at that time. And so getting it was a big thing. And then there was some meeting between Werner Erhard and Trungpa Rinpoche, you know, the great Tibetan teacher. And so there was a discussion about, you know, what you get through the S process about getting it. And Trungpa's only comment was, it isn't it. (laughs) 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 No it is it. And it's just helpful to remember, and that's where faith helps us not get stuck any place. faith or confidence that lets this whole amazing journey of the Dharma continue to unfold. That's the power of this particular quality at the heart of the mind. And it's this journey of understanding that we're on, of deepening understanding, in which the great circularity of our lives begins to take on some meaning. From a worldly perspective, we get up in the morning, we have breakfast, we go through the day, we do our work, we come back to dinner, we watch TV, we relate to our significant others, or not. You know, we go to bed, we get up the next day. Pretty circular. You know, where is all that going? Is it going any place at all? Or on a more macro scale, you know, when we look at this planet and the whole mass of humanity and all of the life forms, you know, and so often it feels like it's heading towards disaster of one kind or another, and certainly each one of us is heading towards death, well, where is the meaning in it? Is there any meaning in it? One small planet in one small solar system 
of one galaxy about among hundreds of billions of galaxies. To read <coughs> a little piece by uh, Stephen Mitchell. This is in a book called Parables and Portraits, which is not his translation, but his original, original writing. Calls this the sense of proportion. There are at least 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Each galaxy contains at least 100 billion stars. Each star illuminates an uncounted number of planets, each of which may support inconceivable forms of life. From most points of view, the green earth is smaller than an electron. All this is happening within your mind. That's where the meaning is to be found. When our faith in the process of deepening wisdom is strong, then every action, every aspect of our lives, even when from an external point of view seems circular or insignificant, in the context of this journey of understanding, Everything we do takes on meaning. In every situation, in any moment, the questions arise. Are we awake or are we asleep? Are we present or are we not present? Is there suffering or not suffering? If there is suffering, what is its cause? What is its end? The great gift of faith is we realize these questions are not theoretical questions. It's not a question of philosophy. This is our life. In the Abhidhamma, faith along with all of the other wholesome qualities, they're called the beautiful states of mind. I never thought that was a very un like characterization. You know, which is quite <coughs> dry and analytic and profound. But the realization or the, the calling of the wholesome states of mind, the beautiful states, it really illuminates something for us. And so when we really look at that quality of faith with, within us or in other people where it's strong, it really is beautiful. And we felt this a lot, and those of you who may have been in Asia in Buddhist countries, where the quality of faith and devotion is so strong, you know, where the poorest people in the villages would come and offer food, and the, the faith with which it was done and the devotion was so pure and so simple and so unmixed with other qualities to me as a Westerner, with a much more complex mind, and many more mixed motivations, it was so inspiring just to see that quality, and it was beautiful, and it was inspiring. See, yes, our minds can come to that place of purity. So faith, confidence, devotion, this is the first of the spiritual faculties. to put your minds at rest 
I'm going to the fifth now. <laughs> that moment of anxiety. Oh no. <laughs> the power of faith, which is the first of the faculties, needs to be in balance with the fifth, which is the spiritual power, the spiritual faculty of wisdom. One of the most frequent wisdom teachings of the Buddha, <coughs> and this, this occurs in a huge number of the discourses and suttas, where the Buddha analyzes the notion of self, the notion of being, in terms of the five skandhas, or the five aggregates, the five constituent elements, which together create this sense of being. You know, and it's like in the example is given of in in the old days a chariot. You know, is a chariot the wheel, is a chariot the axle, is a chariot the seat? You know, and it goes on in that analysis. And when you look in that way you see there is no there's no thing which is the chariot apart from the relationship of all these different elements. The Buddha analyzed what we call being in terms of these five skandhas is the Pali word, literally translated as heaps or, or aggregates. And it's a very useful framework for really seeing clearly what is actually there in our experience in a moment. So a very quick review of this. You know, in a moment, for example, there may be a physical sensation arising. So this is the first aggregate of it's called rupa or, or form, physical materiality. Along with that experience of that sensation, at the same time arising with the physical aggregate is the aggregate of feeling, which in this context means we experience it as being either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So that's another element of what's actually going on. There's the sensation, first aggregate. There's the feeling. The third aggregate, the third element of what is actually there is the aggregate of perception, which is recognizing what it is. It's distinguishing that sensation from all others. We don't mistake the sensation for a thought. And we see it exactly for what it is. And the, in the domain of perception are all the concepts we have and the memories. This is all part of this aggregate of perception. There's the physical, there's the rupa, there's feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. There's perception, we recognize the quality of recognition. The fourth aggregate is called sankharas, which are all the different ways we relate to the moment. So it's all of the other mental factors, mental qualities, aside from feeling and perception, which have been pulled out because of their special nature. Okay, so all the ways we relate, for example, to the sensation, it can be with mindfulness or delusion, it can be with irritation or acceptance, it can be with restlessness or one-pointedness. All of these are this fourth aggregate, the mental tendencies. The fifth aggregate 
is consciousness, the simple cognizing function. And so in any moment of experience, that experience can be analyzed, can be understood as being the collection of these different aggregates, physical sensation, feeling, perception, all of the different habituated tendencies, and knowing. This framework is a way of understanding what is really going on moment at the moment in our experience. It helps free our minds from the wrong view of self. Because self is like chariot. The sense of self or being only comes as an appearance of these aggregates in relationship to one another. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, there's a jigsaw puzzle, and you put all the pieces together, there's a picture. But there's really no house or car or person. You know, those things are the appearance of the different aggregates, the different pieces put together in a certain way. Self or Joseph is like that. As we free ourselves from this view of self, we free ourselves from so many causes of suffering in our lives. The view of self, the misunderstanding that there is some one behind it all, is so much at the root of conflict and suffering. And when we begin to understand the selfless nature of the aggregates, that this mind-body process is the flow of aggregates in different, in different relationships, it becomes the cause of so many blessings in our lives. So I wanted to provide that just quick framework of the five aggregates as a prelude to a teaching in a series of suttas that in a very incisive way, in a very simple way, deconstructs the whole notion of self. So as you listen to this, this could be the moment of great awakening, because it just it just points. Okay, we have ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> this is the story of the monk Anuradha. He was just just a monk in the Buddha's time, and a group of wanderers came to him. You know, other wandering ascetics. And these other wanderers were asking Anuradha, you know, about this Buddha. <coughs> and these questions that they're going to ask are the classical Indian philosophical formulation. So they're asking Anuradha, does the Buddha exist after death or does he not exist after death? Does he both exist and not exist after death? Does he neither exist? nor not exist after death. Okay, so that's the, those are the four uh, you know, ancient philosophic questions of India. And Anuradha replied to these wandering ascetics, Anuradha said, the Buddha is spoken of in ways other than that. 
Okay? So then the ascetics, as it says in the sutta, this is all the story from the sutta, the ascetics reviled Anuradha. They laughed at him. They said, this monk must be a novice. Or if he's an elder, he is an ignorant fool. And then Anuradha thought, well, how could I answer in accordance with the truth? So he went to the Buddha. He told this whole story. So the Buddha then asked Anuradha a series of questions as getting him to understand the truth of the matter. So when you hear the questions, really listen to them or take them in as if the Buddha were asking you these questions. And they're they're really not trick questions. (laughs) But they're profound and they relate to your own experience. So really listen in that way. So the Buddha first asked Anuradha, is the body permanent or impermanent? Anuradha replied, impermanent, O Lord. Then the Buddha said, are feelings permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Bhante. Are perceptions, are mental formations permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, O Lord. Is consciousness permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Second question. What is impermanent, which are all of those things, each of the aggregates, which is our experience, every element of our experience is contained within the aggregates. So all of that is impermanent. So the Buddha then went on to ask, what is impermanent? Is that satisfying or unsatisfying? So Anuradha replied, unsatisfying, unfulfilling. So then the Buddha asked him, what is impermanent, unsatisfying, what is of the nature to change, is it proper to regard any of that as this is mine, this is myself, this is I. Does it make sense to regard something which is changing moment to moment as this is self, this is I, this is mine? Anuradha replied, no, Bhante. It's not proper to regard these elements which are changing and impermanent as self, as mine. Then the Buddha went on. Therefore, Anuradha, and the Buddha in talking of himself used the word tathagata. That's the word when, when he referred to himself. So therefore, Anuradha, do you regard, do you regard the tathagata's body, which is impermanent, unsatisfying, not to be considered self, or mine, Anuradha, do you, do you regard the Tathagata's body as being the Tathagata? Surely not. Do you regard the feelings, the perceptions, the mental activities, the consciousness, each of the aggregates, do you regard any of those 
as being the Tathagata. Surely not. Each being momentary, impermanent, not I. Do you regard the Tathagata as being something apart from the aggregates? No, Bhante. Do you regard him as having no body, no feelings, no perception, no activities, no consciousness? Surely not. This is the line. Then, since in just this life, the Tathagata is not met with in in reality, then since in just this life, the Tathagata is not to be found. Is it proper to say of him he can be spoken of in some other way after death? No, Bande. Since in this very life the Tathagata is not to be found. Not the body, not feelings, not perceptions, not the mental formations, not consciousness. Because each one of those has been seen to be impermanent, unsatisfying, and therefore not I, not self. Well said, Anuradha. (laughs) Both formally and now also, only this do I teach, what suffering is and what is its end. When we really look at the nature of our experience, free from concepts, free from our proliferating thoughts, and we just settle into the actuality of the moment's experience, we see that it is a play of the aggregates, of physical experience and the feelings of pleasantness or unpleasant and the perceptions which are recognizing it and all the mental formations, all the different mental factors and consciousness itself all a play of changing phenomena. And precisely because they're momentary and changing, they are unsatisfying and cannot be regarded as self. They don't last long enough to be self. And so when we look, even now in this very life, the Tathagata is not to be found. The same is true for each one. How can one say anything of the Tathagata after death? It's this amazing deconstruction of the notion of I, of self, of mind. This understanding is the great transforming wisdom of the Dharma. So while faith in the Buddha, in the Dharma, establishes us on the path and gives us energy to continue on the path, becomes the fuel for our aspirations. From the wisdom side, it shows us that there is no one there. There's no one behind phenomena to whom it is happening. Both formally and now also, only this do I teach, what suffering is and what is its end. So these two factors of faith and balance, faith and wisdom, 
need to be in balance. Faith without wisdom can become blind belief. It can become sectarian view. It can become dogmatism. It can strengthen a sense of self. It can concretize our sense of the Buddha as being a person, a being. The Buddha said, you could look at this form for a hundred years and not see the Buddha. Those who see the Dharma see the Buddha. Likewise, wisdom without faith can foster a kind of intellectual arrogance. Mind can become stuck in attachment to an incomplete understanding. Now I've got it. We need the faith to allow the wisdom to continue to grow and unfold. There's one one Dharma teaching which says, attachment to emptiness is the worst disease. So we need the balance of faith and wisdom. 2,500 years ago, the Buddha turned this great wheel of the Dharma, the great wheel of the law, with the awakening and deepening power of both wisdom and faith. We have the energy, faith and wisdom give us the energy to bring our practice and bring our lives into alignment with our highest aspirations. And this is the deepest meaning of our lives. So I would just like to close with let's say little piece by W. H. Murray, who was on a Himalayan expedition. And again, this, I think the metaphor of climbing the mountain, it's a beautiful one, you know, in, in both what he says and in the, the images of Mount Analog. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. But the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. The moment one definitely commits oneself, all sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no one could have dreamed would have come their way. I have learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Sit for a couple of minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.